Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. starting this morning in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, so you may turn to Psalm 19. He did it again. There is one particular phrase in Psalm 19 that I want to pull out that kind of ties into what we're about to look at in the book of Romans. But I like Psalm 19 so much that I think we will just read the whole thing. Psalm 19 says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, and their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, 
and their utterance to the ends of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming forth out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit, or its circle, is to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them... Thy servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The reason that I read that psalm is particularly because of the phrase, keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Do you know what the word presumptuous means? It means, and I had to memorize this definition years ago. Tom also had to memorize it. It means to make an encroachment upon someone else or to take upon oneself without leave or warrant. That's the dictionary definition. What it means is to impose yourself on someone where you're not welcome. That's what it is to presume on someone. If you know that somebody is going to forgive you, you're more likely to presume on them that you can get away with stuff in their presence. Years ago, I heard the phrase, there is a song that says you always hurt the one you love. That's not true. The fact is you always hurt the one you think loves you enough to put up with your junk. That's what presumption is. To assume that somebody loves you so much that they will forgive you no matter how you act. Well, that is the idea behind presumptuous sin. It's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. The idea is because we know we're under grace... Because we know Christ died, because we know we've been forgiven, because we are, Hebrews 10, 14, perfected forever, because all of that is true of us, our tendency then is to think, well, God's forgiven me and everything's under the blood. I can now do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I can just presume on God and even do the things that I know are wrong, even the things that he has said don't do. We can go ahead and do them anyway because, after all, God has forgiven us. That is the very essence of what it is to be presumptive. Instead, what we're going to read from Chapter 6 of the book of Romans now is Paul addressing that very question. At the end of chapter 5, he has said the law came in so that transgressions might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, when Paul wrote those words and sent them to Rome, there were two different audiences that were reading what he wrote. There was the Jewish contingent in Rome, and there was the Gentile contingent in Rome. Both of them were coming from a different background. Now, those who had, for 1,400 years, been following the law, the Jewish contingent, they're now hearing Paul say, that law that was the very standard of your whole life is no longer the way that you get righteousness from God. In fact, it was never the way that you would get righteousness from God. In fact, it was only imposed on you so that you could see how truly unrighteous you really are. However, God is gracious, and through the finished work of Christ, now sin no longer has any hold over you. Therefore, the law cannot help you. You're not under law. You're under grace, and all your sin are covered to the Jewish mind that's been thinking for 1400 years that the way to establish their own righteousness was through the law this was earth shattering news the law can't help you the law is not the way that you get righteousness you've been thinking that you've been advancing that notion for these past 1400 years but the law was only given by God for the purpose of making you really really desperately sinful But grace wins out. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace wins. So naturally, people who have been under the heavy load of the law and tried to live under that heavy yoke, when they hear, come to Christ and you're not under the law anymore, well, then they're thinking, party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. They're thinking... Really, I just separated the room. Half of you were old enough to get that reference. And and the kids in the room all looked at me like I had just said something completely foreign. They're thinking, this is great, great news that grace now has covered all my sins. But then he has to deal with the Gentiles who themselves are hearing for the first time in their lives that despite never being with Yahweh, never being with God, never having had the law, never having had the prophets, not having the scripture, not having any of those advantages, that grace is sufficient for them that they too are going to share in the eternal destiny that the Jewish Messiah provides. That's also going to cause them to say, good deal. I like the way this is working out for me. Both of those groups then ask, are you saying, Paul, that sin doesn't matter anymore? Are you saying, Paul, that now that we're in Christ and he has forgiven all our sins, are you saying that we can sin freely without any fear of any kind of punishment? Is it okay for us to just go out and do whatever we want to do because, hey, it's all under the blood? That's what he's addressing at the beginning of chapter 6. And he starts right in by asking the question, well, then what shall we say? What are we saying now that I have announced to you that the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now that you know that your sin is all covered, what are we going to say about it? And the question he asks that he assumes his readers are going to ask is, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? The NASB says, are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Now, you know there are people out there who think, well, you know, God is really glorified in his gracious kindness to sinners like us. God is really glorified by the fact that he is redeeming irredeemable people like us. That brings God great, great glory. So therefore, in order to magnify the glory of God, I'm going to make sure that when he saves me, he's saving a really bad sinner. Because that amplifies the glory of God. 
Because after all, if he can redeem somebody who's as wretched as me, who continues in sin like I do, and then he's gracious, gracious, gracious to me, think of all the glory that's bringing him. So really, I know I'm a wicked sinner, but I'm doing it for God's good. I'm doing it for God's glory. So then Paul's question is, should we sin all the more so that grace might abound? He's going to respond to that question now, but he's going to respond to it not by saying, well, the redemption that Christ proffered is sufficient unless you sin bad enough, and then there will be some eternal retribution for your sin. That's not a good theological answer, and that's not where Paul goes. Instead, Paul goes back to the indicative and the imperative. And how many times have we talked about that here? He goes back to, who are you? You are those who are aligned with Christ, baptized in Christ. Therefore, you are aligned with his death. And if your body has died and your body is sinful... Well, then death would stop your sin, so reckon yourself to be dead to sin in Christ because you are the body, the bride of Christ. Therefore, knowing who you are, don't be slave to sin. Instead, be slave to righteousness. So his argument is all based in who are you and what should you be like? So that's what we're going to get into now at the beginning of chapter 6. Now, let's talk about this death idea for just a moment. Shall we? Yes, we shall. Because I'm up here alone, and the rest of you are way back there. (laughs) When we look at the concept of death in the Old Testament, it's not eradication. It's not the idea that when somebody dies, they just cease to be. Instead, The idea of death in the Old Testament is the concept of separation. People are separated from this plane, from this world, but they continue to live on. They continue to exist. The Old Testament phrase that I like so much is, when someone dies, they are gathered to their people. So they still exist. They're just separated from their people here on the planet, from their life here, from this earthly plane, but they still exist. When Paul says that you're to reckon yourself dead to sin, he's not saying reckon that sin is completely eradicated from you and from your life. Too often, that's the way it's taught. Too often people say, if you're in Christ, then you are dead to sin, and that means you'll have no sin and you never will sin. Except that the Bible, the New Testament especially, is very clear to tell us that we do continue to have that sin nature. And when we get to chapter 7, Paul's going to talk about that, that while he desires to do good, he still finds this law in his members, that sin is still present with him. So it's not that sin is eradicated. I know so many people who have said, you know, I really question my own Christianity. I question whether I'm even in the faith, whether I'm even in Christ, because I believe in Christ's finished work, but I still sin. I still struggle with sin. I still have this daily battle with sin. And so since there's still sin in my life, I must not be dead to sin because it's not eradicated in my life. So you have to take that Hebrew notion of what death is, that it is separation, not eradication, in order to understand how Paul used the word here, being a thoroughgoing Jew. He said, reckon yourself to be separated from sin. And then he said, sin is no longer going to have mastery over you. You're not going to be servant to sin. Christ has finished the work of paying your sin debt. That's the reason that sin no longer has mastery over you. Once upon a time when you weren't in Christ, sin was going to make sure that you paid the debt 
that you owed God for your sin. But then Christ intervened, paid that debt for you, and no longer is sin your master. But that doesn't mean that you will never fail. That doesn't mean that you'll never come short of the glory and the holiness of God. What it does mean is the bent of your life, the proclivity of your life is going to be toward holiness, toward righteousness, and every day you're going to consider yourself as separated from sin and use that knowledge of who you are and what Christ has done in order to avoid the daily sin in your life. But if you fail and you will fail, John says you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's always there pleading your case because you will even though you're Christian, continue to fail. So don't start thinking, I fail, therefore I must not be Christian. The Christian journey is one of continual battle, of continual battle between your flesh and your desire to sin and your desire to serve God and your desire to be a slave to righteousness. In the next chapter, like I said, Paul's going to describe that battle for us. But do consider yourself as separated from sin. Do consider yourself, do account yourself as separated from that thing that once upon a time was going to condemn you eternally. You are now separated from that. It has no mastery over you. Therefore, you can now be something you never could before, which is you can be a servant to righteousness. What are we going to say then? Are we to continue in sin or to sin all the more so that grace might increase or might abound? Well, Paul's answer in verse 2 is, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Okay, there's his basic premise causing his readers to say, how have we died to sin? In what way have we died to sin? We're still in this flesh. We're still in the battle every day. How have we died to sin? He's now going to describe the way in which we can reckon ourselves as dead, separated from sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Okay, now we have to talk about baptism for just a moment. That phrase, baptized into Christ Jesus, is a particular baptism in the first century. In the 21st century that we live in, when somebody professes Christ, they go to a church, they are baptized. We don't see the distinction between that baptism and the other baptisms that exist in the Bible. Among the Jews, there was a great many ceremonial washings. Those ceremonial washings were not into Christ. There was even a baptism of John the Baptist. John the baptizer baptized into repentance, but he baptized Jews. And he baptized Jews prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So he was not baptizing people into Christ. In fact, here, I'll show it to you. Uh, Turn over to the book of Acts real quick. Turn to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is going into Ephesus. And it came about that while Apollos was in Corinth... Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Paul's immediate question then is, into what then were you baptized? What type of baptism did you have? And they said, into John's baptism. 
So these are disciples apparently of John who understand that John was the forerunner to the coming Christ. They had John's baptism, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know if there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul's question is, well, then were you ever baptized into Christ? So when they heard this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, a different baptism. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came into them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about 12 men. So are you seeing the distinction between the types of baptism that were extant in the Middle East in the first century? John's baptism was out there. People had been baptized by John. But then after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there was a new kind of baptism, specifically baptism into Christ. That's what Paul is referring to in verse 3 when he says, Or do you not know that all of us that were baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? In what way were we baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul has drawn a one-to-one equation between the elements of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and our baptism in which we show Christ's burial and then raising up to newness of life. When we're baptized, we're put under the water. That's why I think it's so important that immersion is the proper mode of Christian baptism. We are put under the water. If we're not brought up out of the water, sure enough, we're going to die. We're put under the water in a parallel with Christ's death and being put into the grave. And then we are raised up out of the water to walk in newness of life, a phrase that I use any time that I baptize somebody. When I bring them up out of the water, I say, now go and walk in newness of life. That's because of Paul's parallel right here. We are buried the same way Christ was buried. People are buried because they're dead. You should reckon yourself as being dead, and dead people don't sin. You get the parallel? And then the same way that Christ raised from the dead and came up out of the grave, you are raised up out of the water, a new man to go and walk in the newness of life through the Spirit of God, reckoning yourself to be dead to sin. So follow Paul's logic. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's what baptism is, the likeness of his death, If we've become united with him, which is what baptism is, the public declaration that you are united with Christ, that you have faith in Christ, if you have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. How did he resurrect? He died because sin was imputed to him. He raised sinless, perfect everlasting and not able to die again because he had no sin debt. So we're to reckon ourselves that same way in the likeness of his resurrection. We're to reckon ourselves as dead to sin, dead in the body of sin, and then we've raised to newness of life. And just as Christ ever lived then in righteousness, we're to reckon ourselves as slaves to righteousness. So far, do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's going to get deeper yet. I just don't want to lose you along the way of Paul's argument. So far, so good? Yes. Okay. Three people are with me. 
For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this. Here's what Paul wants you to know. That our old self, the old man, this body of sin, our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now that language is really specific and it's repeated several places in the Bible. That if you are a sinner, you have no choice but sin, therefore you are enslaved by your sin. Let's see, how should I put this? Should, should I tell you the, the nice story or the... No, I'm going to tell you the other one. Um, I had a friend when I used to live out in Los Angeles. For all I know, he's dead now. We haven't known each other for, since I've moved here, so I can talk about him. He was a cocaine dealer. He was a major cocaine dealer. He dealt to the rich and powerful and famous in Hollywood. I asked him one time if he ever sampled his wares. And he said, no. I said, never? And he said, no, I have never done cocaine. (laughs) Wait, but you sell it. You've become rich on it. You drive a great car because of it. I mean, and you've never done it? And he said, no, because everyone who purchases coke from me believes they have it under control. But the first time they do it, they've lost control. Okay, same idea. The first time you sinned, at that moment, you've lost control. You don't control your sin. Your sin controls you. You are servant to your sin, and you have a... I'm sure you've all experienced this. You have a really difficult time overcoming your sinfulness. And the reason you have this struggle with your sinfulness is because sin owns you. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get slightly better? Are you going to improve your lot in life? Are you going to clean up your act a little bit? None of that works you'll still end up right back at the very thing that you were trying so hard to conquer. It's going to take Christ intervening for you, paying your sin debt, and then giving you his spirit to convict you and to encourage you day by day, hour by hour, to recognize yourself as in Christ and therefore walking in newness of life and the old man and his sinful proclivities have been put to death when Christ was put to death. You got that? That's the equation that Paul draws. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be Slaves to sin, which implies that we once were, but then we're not any longer. And he that has died is free from sin. That's a fact. That's a simple fact. You want to stop sinning altogether? You want your body of sin, your corrupt brain, your dark heart, you want your body to just quit sinning? There's a real easy way to do it. Die. Dead men don't sin. Dead men don't do much of anything. So Paul said, because the one who has died is free from sin, reckon yourself as dead. Reckon yourself as in Christ when Christ died. Why did Christ die? Because sin was imputed to him. He died under the weight and the obligation and the debt of sin. So reckon yourself in Christ and Christ in you, and therefore when he died, you died. And because you're dead, you don't sin anymore. 
Now, it would be great if it was just that easy. It'd be great if we could just go, well, okay, then I reckon myself in Christ and Christ is in me and, and I reckon myself dead and therefore I don't sin anymore. Except that the sin battle continues. It's a constant battle. So Paul knows that and here's what he says. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The same way Christ resurrected, we reckon ourselves as walking in newness of life. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, so death is no longer master over him. Get that right too. In Paul's thinking, when people die, death is exhibiting its mastery over those people. Death reigns on planet earth because of sin. The only one who reigns is a king, is a master. Because death reigned, at one point it even had mastery over Christ in that Christ died. But then when Christ resurrected, he proved that death was not his master, that holiness, righteousness, and eternal life were his master. And Paul keeps saying, keep that in your head. Remember that. If that's the Christ that is in you, that becomes your inspiration when sin raises its ugly head. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Okay, so how often did Christ die? Once. Was it sufficient? Yes. Yeah. Did it accomplish everything he came to accomplish? Yes. Yeah. Did he need to go back and do it again to make up the part he missed? No. No. So that's why Paul says he died and he died to sin. The only way he could die, being the perfect righteous one, was for sin to be imputed to him. And then he died for sin and then was raised for our justification. And so we need to consider that Christ himself was raised from the dead, never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, never to be done again. But the life that he now lives, he lives to God. So even so... Here's this wonderful word. So now knowing all that, knowing that about yourself, even now consider yourself to be dead to sin. That word consider right there, the NASB translates it as consider, is a present imperative. And the only reason I bring that up is because it means do it now and now and now do it again now. <laughs> Do it some more. It's not an action that's ever finished. It's not the action that you ever go, well, you know, once upon a time, I considered myself in Christ, Christ in me, and I considered myself dead to sin. There, that's done. No, what Paul said is this is a constant thing. Why is it constant? Because your body of sin is going to keep rebelling. Your sin nature is going to keep rising up. And every time it does, you are to constantly consider yourself to be dead to sin. And dead men don't sin. So consider yourself to be dead. Dead men also don't want stuff. You can check that. You can run down to the graveyard. And you can ask people, you know, what does anybody need here? Can I get anyone a coffee? Can I do anything for anybody? They don't need stuff. They don't want stuff. They don't desire stuff. They're dead. So if you consider yourself dead, then where should your desires be? Your desire should be for Christ and righteousness and eternal life. But most of your sin in your life is a direct result of stuff you want yes. and how much you want it. Yes. 
and when you want it. And I better get it now or I'm going to throw a fit and make other people unhappy. Dead men don't do that. Dead men don't want stuff. Dead men don't sin. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. But then also consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's make this practical for just a moment. So there's a sin right in front of you. Something that you've always done in the past. I'm just going to pick something completely arbitrary. If this happens to be your particular sin, I don't know about it. I'm not picking you out. Okay. Uh, Let's say that you regularly stop at a bar and get yourself tipsy before you go home most nights of the week. And you've decided that since the Bible says not to be drunk, that you need to stop that. Okay, when you're standing at that precipice where you can either go home or you can go do the thing you've always done, consider yourself not only dead to that sin, but consider yourself as alive in Christ Jesus. Think about who you are. Go back to the indicative. Who are you? And because of who you are and you're alive in Christ Jesus, that ought to be the inspiration to walk away from the thing that has always enslaved you before. So Paul says, think about that. Consider that. And consider it constantly. It's a constant imperative. But notice again what we have in that verse. Indicative imperative. The imperative is an ongoing imperative. Do this, do this, do this. But he doesn't start there. He starts with, who are you? Who are you in Christ? What has happened for you in Christ? Christ has already died and paid your sin debt. So you don't owe that debt anymore. Therefore, you're not enslaved to sin anymore. Instead, you should reckon yourself. Here's the imperative. Reckon yourself as alive to Christ. And because you are alive to Christ the same way that he is ever living because he got up out of the grave again, because you're alive to Christ, then you should not any longer live by the sins that once enslaved you. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body So that you obey its lust. There's another present imperative in that verse. The phrase, do not let sin reign. That's a present imperative. And what it means is do it constantly. Do it constantly. Do it constantly. Why would he make it that way? Because sin is constantly going to come tapping on your shoulder. Sin is going to constantly try to get your attention. Sin is constantly going to try to get you to give in, deny your faith, deny Christ, deny what you know is right. Come and do this stuff with me. So you need to constantly remember not to let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would what? Obey its lusts. That's the reason that I said dead men don't want stuff, which is what lusting is. Dead men don't lust. But it is your lust that will lead you to sin. Therefore, don't let that sin reign in your mortal body. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. And then he uses again a really interesting word. The NASB says, Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That word instruments is also kind of a military term. It it sometimes can be translated as the weapons, the weapons of the warfare. So don't go on presenting your physical body, the members of your body. In chapter 7, he's going to get into how sin reigns in his members. When he wants to do right, he finds a law that when he would do good, sin is present with him. It's in the members of his body. So, with that same thought in mind, he says, 
don't go on presenting that's the way you've always been that's the way you've always done it you've always seen sin coming and then gladly agreed with it and then said yes I'm going to present my body and the members of my body to this sin and he says don't go on doing that don't go on presenting the members the parts of your body to sin as instruments as weapons don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but now contrarily present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and present your members as instruments weapons of righteousness So again, there's an imperative. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin. Stop doing that. And then you say, well, I I don't know where I get the inspiration to stop. Because I like my sin. I want to do my sin. I want to engage in my sin. It's, It's overwhelming. It's hard to let go of. The inspiration is... Who are you? The inspiration is, have you in fact died with Christ? Has Christ in fact paid your sin debt and then brought you to newness of life? And have you made that public proclamation in your baptism? In your baptism, you have aligned yourself with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So now knowing that that's who you are, you're in Christ and Christ is in you, Paul can then give you the imperative, which is stop it. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you're not under the law, but under grace. Now, that sounds exactly like chapter 5, verse 20. If you go back, it's where we began. The law came in that the transgression might increase. The purpose of the law was to prove how sinful sin was. And everybody that was under the law, sin became master of them. Because all they could do was, by the law, attempt to be better by obeying rules that didn't make anybody any better. It just demonstrated how bad they were. So as a consequence, everybody under the law is mastered by sin, according to Paul. And yet, I've said this so many times. Here, I'll say it again. Are you ready? Ready. The ministry of death... Remember that? Oh, yes. He calls the law the ministry of death. Here he says that if you're under the law, then sin has mastery over you. How does sin not have mastery over you? If you're not under the law. Oh, great. Perfect. How do I reach the status of not under the law? You come to Christ. In Christ The law is fulfilled, and in Christ, that law is no longer exercising mastery over you and telling you constantly how bad you are, how wrong you are, how sinful you are, how depraved you are, how you're going to end up under God's condemnation. None of that is true of you if you are in Christ. Do you see the contrast that Paul makes between law and grace, between being under the law in Christ as far as Paul is concerned the law does not and cannot save you it can only kill you but Christ gives you everlasting life and then sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but you're under grace so what then he's kind of back to the first question he asked so then what Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's just the common thinking. 
through the years, I've met so many people. There's one person that stands out in my mind right now, a fellow who was, in fact, a, a raging alcoholic. And I said to him, you claim to be a Christian, and yet how do you reconcile that with your alcoholism? And he said, well, Jim, you're the guy who always says God is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, if he wanted me to be sober, he'd make me sober. He was justifying his sin and blaming God for it. That kind of thinking is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? That's a question particularly pointed, I think, at the Jewish contingency that he's writing to, who he's now saying, you're not under the law anymore. And they would say, perfect, we're not under the law, we can sin all we want now. And he's asked the question twice now, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Sin is not master over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? His answer is most emphatic. His answer is no. May it never be. Don't even think it. Don't even consider it. Because after all, the God that you're serving is a righteous, holy God. So why would a righteous, holy God be worshipped by your sin? Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, then you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's a basic reality. In first century Rome... This idea of indentured servitude was much more common than it is today. There was only a two-class system in Roman society. You either were free men and fairly well-to-do, or you were part of the great unwashed masses, and you were usually then servant to somebody. And the only way you could get by was to find somebody who had enough money to afford you, and you would make them a deal. And you would say, if you'll give me food and a place to live, I will do your work. Paul is stating that as a reality in the society he's writing to and saying, don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as a servant for obedience, then you are the slave, the servant of the one whom you obey? Because they can then tell you to do anything because your life is dependent on them. But having said that, he's now going to take it into the sin righteousness concept and say, when you turn your body over to sin, sin has mastery over you and you are its slave and you obediently have to do whatever it tells you to do because you've turned yourself over to it. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death. Sin, law, ministry of death, condemnation, all those words all go together. And if you give yourself over to sin, the end result is death, eternal death, judgment, condemnation. Or of obedience, which is obedience to God, obedience to Christ, obedience to his word, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be, though you were, though past tense, you used to be the slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. This Christianity that Paul is extolling and teaching and preaching, they became obedient in their heart. Their heart was changed. They were internally changed so that they would be obedient to that form of teaching, that doctrine to which they are now committed. The consequence being in verse 18, and you have been freed from sin. Does that mean they don't sin anymore? 
No, it means they're freed from the consequences of sin. They're freed from the debt of sin. Christ has paid that debt as a consequence. Sin no longer has mastery over you. You don't have to fear that your sin is going to condemn you everlastingly. If you are in Christ, that debt is fully paid. So you have been freed from the hold that sin used to have on you. And having been freed from sin, you become, I love this phrase, slaves of righteousness. We'll stop there. Here's the deal. For too many years, growing up in the church, I heard sin, whatever that word meant when I heard it as a kid. I just thought it meant being a disobedient child or being angry at my parents. But I was taught that the way to solve the sin problem And the sin problem existed in me. I was clear about that. The way to solve it was to get busy and do something about it. Get busy and do more good works. And then that very Catholic notion, because I was in the Lutheran church, which is just Catholic light, the very Catholic notion was Peter is going to meet you at the gate to heaven And he's going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds just even a little bit, then you get to go into heaven because good people go to heaven. And that's what I was raised with. Until I really understood myself. And then I realized how truly incapable I was. And that I could not save myself. I couldn't even change myself. I'd get up every day and say, today I'm not going to do that. By noon, I was already back into whatever it was I was trying not to do. I had no ability to help myself. So because I was utterly and completely incapable, God sent his son. And then he imputed the sin debt that belonged to all his chosen elect people He imputed that debt to his son, and his son died under that weight of sin. But he didn't stay dead. Then he resurrected to newness of life, never to die again, proof that he has no more sin. Then when I was baptized as an adult, because I was baptized once as a little Lutheran kid, when they sprinkled water on my head and said words over me that I don't even remember... So I chose to be baptized again as an adult, an actual professing believer. And the words that were said over me at the end of the baptism was, rise to walk in newness of life. And The more that I've understood and studied baptism, the more I've recognized that parallel, that direct parallel between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and our baptism rising up out of the water to walk in newness of life. That makes me, not because I make that profession, but because that profession is evidence, is proof that Christ has changed me, that his Holy Spirit is in me. Because that is true, that makes me a different person. That makes me a new man. And the old man I now reckon is dead. And through reckoning him as dead, that gives me the ability to do what all my trying couldn't ever do. All my trying just made me more sinful. But by reckoning myself alive to Christ and reckoning myself as dead to sin, that has given me the ability time and time and time again to walk in a way that I think is Indicative of the profession that I carry. And so I don't do the things I used to do. Am I perfect? Oh, not a long way from it. Ask my wife. She's right over here. You can ask her after service. You can say, hey, is Jim perfect? And she'll say to you with an Australian accent, no, no way. Not perfect. But that's why Paul said in that perfect imperative sense, Do it every day. Reckon yourself. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself as alive in Christ. And don't anymore 
Give your body over. Give the members of your body over to sin. Stop it. Just don't do it anymore. See, we as Calvinists, we as Bible-believing, Reformed people, not only believe that Christ did it all, we not only believe that it's Christ and Christ alone, but we also believe that we are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And the way we do that is to reckon ourselves in Christ, Christ in us, and that becomes our inspiration to walk in newness of life. Got it? Got it. Questions? We're good? Okay, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.